0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Film Music Friday. I am your host, Aaron Smale. Before we begin, I wanted to give thanks to all my listeners who have given me feedback and encouragement these past few weeks. And whether you're listening to today's episode on my website, on Spotify, or on Apple Podcasts, welcome. Today on Film Music Friday, we're taking a look at the concept of underscoring and the role of music under dialogue in film. For the first time on the podcast, I'll be showing you some samples of actual scenes from films with the dialogue over the music, or rather the music underscoring the dialogue, and then playing the piece of music on its own, illustrating some points. We'll get to see music in action, as it were, as opposed to listening to the pieces purely on their own. First things first, though, I'm going to go over a few technical terms one should be familiar with for today's topic. First up is diegetic music. This is any music that the character or characters on screen can hear or are aware of. Non-diegetic music is any music that the audience can hear but the characters cannot, also known as underscoring. So diegetic music is like when characters are singing a song on screen or listening to live music in the film. But non-diegetic music is when, in their world, there is no music playing or only we the audience can have that pleasure at that particular moment. Many films use a mix of these two techniques, even a film that's completely underscored likely has a scene where a radio is on or a record player or a live band or musician is playing, and sometimes filmmakers will overlap diegetic and non-diegetic music to a wonderful effect. So all that being said, underscoring is film music that doesn't emanate from a source seen or implied on the screen. It doesn't have to be orchestral music like in the usual film score, underscoring can also include pre-existing soundtrack music brought in specifically for use under a scene. Oftentimes in film, I find that many directors stay away from overusing the musical score under important dialogue, or if it is there, leaving it to come in near the end to really help punctuate the point of a conversation. In comedies, however, the music is a little more present usually to emphasize the comic moments and a generally lighter tone throughout. An interesting example of a mix of drama and comedy is in Alexandre de score to the Grand Budapest Hotel, which I greatly admire, and you'll know this if you've already listened to episode 2 of the podcast. Early on in the film, Mr. Gustave and Zero are taking the train to Lutz to pay their respects to the recently deceased Madame D. On the train, they are stopped by armed police or militia and forced to hand over documents. This is how the scene plays out. Well, hello
1: there, chaps. Documents, please. With pleasure. It's not a very flattering portrait, I'm afraid. I was once considered a great beauty. What's the F stand for? Fritz? France. France? I knew it! He's making a funny face. That's a migratory visa with stage three worker status, France, darling. He's with me. Come outside, please. Wait a minute. Sit down, Zero. His papers are in order. I cross-referenced them myself with the Bureau of Labor and Servitude. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. He hasn't done anything wrong. Stop it, bitch. Da- Never mind, Meshuggah. Uh, let them proceed. Ow, oh, that hurt! <laughs> oh. 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 You filthy goddamn pockmarked fascist assholes. Take your hands off my lobby boy!
0: So you'll notice De Pla's constant use of a snare drum underneath the conversation, no doubt to emphasize a militaristic sense to the audience or a sense of measured order. The heavier, well-timed timpani sounds each occur with a look from one character to the other before they all get into a scuffle. Everything works out afterwards, and Mr. Gutov and Zero continue on their journey. This is the music cue on its own, titled The Daylight Express to Lutz. Speaking of the military, I've found that oftentimes in films depicting war or battle scenes, they'll sometimes feature a scene where the hero has to rally their troops. These instances are almost always accompanied by music to help the hero's cause. Of course being underscoring, the troops aren't aware of the music, and we, the audience, are often taking the side of the troops whom at first may not be so sure a particular battle is a good idea. The music in turn accompanying the hero's speech helps win us over. A great example of this is in the movie Braveheart, the historically inaccurate but nevertheless amazing film about William Wallace and the fight for Scottish freedom in the early 1300s. With a fantastic score by the late James Horner, in this scene we have several clans of Scots armed to fight the English at the Battle of Stirling. They're dejected by the size of the English army, and they argue that they'll live if they retreat. But Wallace rallies them with this famous speech.
1: Uh, fight and you may die. Run.
0: So the music doesn't overpower by any means, but it's very present and the unique instrumentation Horner uses in his score comes through a bit here. This is the music cue on its own, titled Sons of Scotland. Of course, being a preliminary battle in the movie, the music actually somehow conveys that while this is a potential triumph, that the struggle is by no means over if the Scots win. Not sure how else to put it other than that the music is exactly enough, you know? Another time we often see the presence of underscoring is at the end of movies, sort of as a sign that things are wrapping up, but also to punctuate the final points of a speech or conversation that will ultimately end the story like this example from the end of the Shawshank Redemption, scored by Thomas Newman, where Morgan Freeman's character, Red, is on his way to see his friend, Andy Dufresne, who had famously escaped Shawshank prison earlier in the film. Red himself is released on parole, but he willingly violates it as he explains in this touching last scene.
1: For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. Parole violation course i doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that yeah. not for an old crook like me fort hancock texas please i find i'm so excited i can barely sit still a whole of thought in my head i think it's the excitement only a free man can feel a free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams.
0: Beautiful. The ending, of course, that after Red says, I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams, I hope, we see Andy working on his boat on the beach, and Red walking towards him. Andy sees him, and the camera from far away pans out, and just before the music resolves, they embrace. For the majority of that scene, Newman plays with the same little melody in E-flat major over and over, with other instruments underneath slowly building towards that last note finalizing or punctuating the story. It's satisfying. This is the cue on its own, titled, So Was Red. Notice how, listening to it on its own, the repetition becomes just a bit monotonous as it goes on. But as we heard in the scene, it fits just about perfectly with Red's monologue. This is a stylistic feature of Newman's music in the context of underscoring, as we saw with Horner's underneath the freedom speech from Braveheart. The music in these cues is exactly enough, no more, no less and with good reason, as the music at the end of the day in scenes like these is meant solely to support and encourage the audiences to feel, not to distract or pull focus from the on-screen action or the spoken lines. It's interesting to see how some composers handle this when compared to others. In this next example, from the ending to Dead Poets Society, scored by Maurice Jarre, he employs the film's central theme being the same as the school anthem. It comes full circle here when, as Professor Keating's character, played by the late Robin Williams, is collecting his belongings from the classroom in which he no longer teaches, his students give him a fitting send-off, much to the dismay of the head of school who orchestrated Keating's firing, now teaching his class. This is how the scene plays out. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson.
1: you hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. How dare you?
0: Do you hear me? Oh, Captain, my captain. Mr. Overstreet, I warned you. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down, Sit
1: down. all of you. I want you to seek Sit down. Leave, Mr. Keegan.
0: So we see here, in Jar's 80's electronic score, the theme that slowly builds, starting very small indeed, but building to a great triumph. It is a very discernible melody, one that may well have stayed in the minds of audiences after they'd left the theatre, which, in my mind, doesn't distract from the dialogue. Granted the scene becomes mainly a visual spectacle as the students one by one stand on their desks to say goodbye, allowing for the music to take over. The piece of music itself is called Keating's Triumph. With the dialogue removed, you really notice how much it builds, and how Jar layers the music as it goes on, repeating the anthem melody. If you've listened to episode 3, my analysis of John Williams' score to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you'll remember that a big part of that score is Williams' use of leitmotifs. In the context of underscoring, it's important to mention that a few of the clips I played in that last episode occur underneath dialogue which is interesting because Williams' use of the themes is subtle enough at times to be noticeable, but not so much as to take away or distract from the dialogue. A great example of this technique from John Williams is near the end of Return of the Jedi when Darth Vader dies. Luke is carrying him to a shuttle, promising to save him, but Vader knows it's his end and he wants Luke to remove his mask so he can take a look at his son. Listen for the subtle hints of Darth Vader's leitmotif under this scene when Luke removes his mask.
1: You here, I've got to save you. You already have. Look, you were right. You were right about me. Tell your sister you were right, Father.
0: I won't leave you. Williams plays the main bit of Vader's motif four times in that clip alone. Each in a different key. So if you didn't catch them, this is the piece of music on its own. Much easier to hear them with the music on its own, I think. A simple and effective way to show the character's arc or changing circumstances. In his prime, obviously, Vader's theme is the grand march we all know. But in this tender and sad moment, his demise is accompanied with his theme played on just a few instruments and slower, the musical theme seemingly losing life just as the character is. This leads me into my next example of music as underscoring in pivotal plot points, times in the movie where the character is enlightened or finds out a truth or something that alters their course for the rest of the story, for better or for worse. The first example I want to play is the Remember Who You Are scene from the original Lion King movie, scored by Hans Zimmer. In this scene, Rafiki shows a now mature Simba that the life of his father, Mufasa, lives on in Simba, and a sort of apparition sequence occurs when Mufasa appears to Simba in the clouds above and speaks to him, offering him some life-affirming advice. You see,
1: he lives in you.
0: Obviously a very powerful moment for Simba, and the music backs it up appropriately as Zimmer adds an angelic sounding chorus to the score in this scene. This is the music cue on its own. I usually only remember the songs by Elton John and Tim Rice, but this is definitely a cue I'll keep on remembering in an original score worth revisiting. The next pivotal plot point where music plays a big role is in the movie Moonlight, score by Nicholas Bratel. In the first part of the film, Mahershala Ali's character, Juan teaches the main character, Sharon, nicknamed Little, how to swim. The music creeps in and is at times almost audibly equal to that of the dialogue, which is entirely one instructing Little in what to do. This is how the scene plays out.
1: Hey man, I got you. There you go. Ten seconds. Remember that right there. You're in the middle of the world, man. That's good. Love you. All right, you good? More athletic. Get ready. Think we got a swimmer. You want to try? You ready to swim?
0: So, Bertel uses arpeggiated strings, which means the strings outline a particular chord up or down, and in this case, both up and down. Perhaps to convey a sense of anxiety or nervousness that Little's feeling at trying something new, like swimming. This is the music cue on its own. I love the reverb and the echo that Bretel keeps in the music. It gives a sense of the gravity of the situation. It's pivotal in the plot because Chiron doesn't have a father figure in his life, so Juan takes on that role for a few moments, teaching Little something valuable, and it's more likely that the music is meant to convey the impact that this has on Chiron's life. So I think we can all agree that there is great power in the potential of underscoring. One of the main takeaways from this exploration is that Underscoring not only sets or indicates the mood of a scene, but it also has the power to uplift the scene and to encourage audiences to feel, to indulge in the emotion of a scene. You know, my dad asked me a question recently I think could be relevant here. He asked, when watching a movie for the first time, do I notice the music? And I really couldn't give him a straight answer, but on further contemplation, I came to the conclusion that most times I don't notice the music as much as when, say, watching it a second time or watching a clip from the movie. As an audience member watching a movie for the first time, our primary goal, I find, is to figure out the story, to listen to the characters, to figure out what's going on, what to look out for, figure out how we're supposed to be feeling about things. The music helps this, of course, but I find it does so subconsciously. Now, my evidence for this is that when you listen to a piece of music in the soundtrack for a film later on, I find I can remember what was going on in the particular scene through listening to the piece of music that played underneath it. So while the scene itself is memorable, the music acts as a sort of catalyst of memory, helping us recall not only what happened, but how it made us feel. So that tells me that during the movie, watching it for the first time, my brain subconsciously takes in the music, and I'm obviously hearing it, but my primary focus is listening to the dialogue, figuring out what's going on. And the proof lies in that hearing the music later on after the film's over, I am able to recall the scene. I hope you've come to recognize the importance of underscoring, and with that importance, recognize the power in the absence of underscoring. In my search for clips and scenes where underscoring occurs, it became apparent that most directors and filmmakers will gravitate more towards a pivotal scene with no music underneath at all. Maybe it creeps in towards the end. Equal importance, I'd say, especially in a film where some scenes with dialogue have underscoring and some do not. Next time you're watching a movie, ask yourself what is the significance of the scene without music? Why did the director have music here but not there? Because oftentimes in movies, the music has just as much to say as the characters do. Well, that concludes our look at the role of underscoring in film, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Film Music Friday. And as always, if you like hearing me talk about film music on Fridays, be sure to follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and share far and wide on social media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay well, my friends. This has been Film Music Friday, the podcast, and I am your host, Aaron Smale. Thanks for listening.